0: Well, Good morning. My name is Jim. If you're a guest, I would love to meet you after the service this morning. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here, and like you, I want to know what Pastor Michael's favorite color is. I just don't know that, so we can solve that together. But I, I do welcome you and do hope I get to greet you if you're first-time guest uh, with us this morning. I especially want to make sure you get your gift that we have for you at the Information Center Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, as you're turning here, I have a couple of uh, just brief announcements I want to run by you. First of all, there's a rumor spreading about me at church this morning, I just found out about it. Did I throw my back out yesterday and earn an appointment with the chiropractor tomorrow? That is true. But that's where the rumor starts, too. I was told this morning that it's been de- publicly declared that I threw my back out yesterday dancing with a sign at the, at the uh, backpack giveaway out on the road. That is false. <laughs> was I dancing with the sign? It wasn't defined dancing. Uh, the other two sign guys at the street were Paul Hoops and John Cole. They were definitely dancing. I was a little more refined, uh, but... Uh, it was a special day, but I, I did I did threw my back out before the whole event started, just helping carry a sign, the Awana sign, and I was just goofing off. And Like I said, I have an appointment tomorrow morning at the chiropractors, but it's all good. But I am so excited with how the backpack giveaway went yesterday, and I want to thank all of you who prayed for that for weeks and even months leading up to it. Thank you to all of you who helped purchase and prepare these, again, weeks and months ahead. And all of those who showed up yesterday, we all had our own lane uh, to be in, and, uh, and it was a great morning. Uh, I want to especially thank uh, Carrie and Elizabeth Zauner, uh, one of our deacons, and his wife, and, uh, for their leadership in this. And he's going to close this service, and at, at the conclusion of our time together this morning, he's going to give you more of a report of how yesterday went and numbers. But it was, it was profoundly successful from a, a four-direction disciple standpoint. And from the standpoint of sowing the seed of the gospel. Profoundly successful. And we thank the Lord for that. So you'll get more information on that. But if you're spreading rumors about me, I want to meet with you in the lobby afterwards, too, about my back. I wasn't dancing with the sign. Moving briskly sometimes, perhaps. Um, and one more thing, too. Uh, this evening, I'm starting um, a new series I've never, I haven't have done here um, I think I've only done it in one other situation in, in almost three decades, but it's a, it's, a, it's a heavy series. It's called Two Kingdoms, One Home, and I'm anticipating it'll take three Sunday nights together. I'm going to start that series tonight. The subtitle says it all. This is a series on how, how to live with a disobedient or unsaved spouse. And I've gone back and forth on whether or not I was going to live stream it or not, and and even post the recording. Sometimes I don't do that with Sunday night series. But I'm choosing to do that this time, Um, even though I'll be using some personal examples from my family and upbringing. um, I'll do so carefully. I want everyone to come to this service and this series, just to be honest with you. You say, well, I'm in a good marriage. True, you are right now, perhaps, but you don't know what tomorrow holds. Or you might be in a good marriage, but uh, um, you know someone else who's struggling with this. What kind of counsel could you give to them? You need to get equipped tonight. Uh, I'm not going to go deep, but I want to. I want to talk to you on how do you minister to a spouse who is having to do life with someone who is disobedient to Jesus? They claim to be a believer and they're disobedient, or we just know they're unsaved. What's the plan? And the neat thing about Scripture is that it is robust enough to have a sufficient answer for you. And so we're going to swim through those waters together starting tonight, and I invite you uh, to be part of that. And, uh, and I, w- I really want our young people and our singles in our congregation of all ages to come as well. Because tonight there will be some warnings issued as well from Scripture to all of us, uh, no matter where we find ourselves, whether it's in a good marriage or one that's a challenge spiritually. All right? So I encourage you to come. Your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 this morning. And also open in front of me is a poem I want to start with. And the poem goes like this. I don't know who wrote it. I don't have uh, an answer to that. But uh, the poem is instructive. Listen to this. It's a prayer. Comfort me, Lord, and pay my bills. Comfort me, Lord... And cure my ills. Comfort me, Lord, and remove my fears. Comfort me, Lord, and dry my tears. Comfort me, Lord, and increase my wealth. Comfort me, Lord, and preserve my health. Comfort me, Lord, and plead my case. Comfort me, Lord, enlarge my place. Comfort me, Lord, and... And tell me why. Comfort me, Lord, and set me on high. Comfort me, Lord, and do what I say. Comfort me, Lord, and do it today. The Spirit listened as I uttered my mind. He said not a word as I pleaded and pined. And then he spoke in the language of conviction saying, comfort isn't comfort in the absence of affliction. That's a great poem. And it lands right where we need to land as we come back to 1 Peter chapter 2. The author of this epistle, of course, is the Apostle Peter. We've been studying his life and his writing for many months now together. And Peter understands that phrase, comfort isn't comfort in the absence of affliction. You see, Peter is learning this along with his readers. And his pen reads all too familiar to us as readers today. Comfort isn't comfort in the absence of affliction. Affliction, for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, To those who have accepted his free gift of eternal life, affliction comes with the package. Rejection comes with our pledge of allegiance to our Lord. And so this is exactly where he lands in the verses we're going to be considering this morning, which will be verses 18 through 20 of chapter 2. And you know what we're going to find right off the bat here is that he is picking up right where he left off. And he left off with what we considered in our previous study, verses 13 through 17. He left off coaching us with clarity how we are to live as believers in the context of a godless government that crushes us because of what we believe. It was quite a, um, I'll say, energetic sermon when we looked at verses 13 through 17. Remember that? I think it was two weeks ago. When we were taught... From Peter to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to imperfect human institutions like government. It was all too fresh in our minds, too, being only a few years removed from the heart of COVID and that whole conversation. And we learned from Peter in our previous study that three principles guide us as we move through and under God established institution. Of government. It's the, we saw the principle of evangelism. It becomes an opportunity for us to, to see a harvest of souls and how we respond when we're persecuted. We saw the principle of sovereignty that the authorities over us right now, even the imperfect ones and godless ones like Nero, are part of God's plan for us right now. And we also saw the principle of lordship, that are we going to obey our Lord in the most difficult times of persecution from a government. Yeah, it was a heavy study, I admit it. Lots of lively conversations after that one, in the lobby or perhaps uh, over lunch. And I've done a lot of, continued to reflect on it a little bit as well because of some of the conversations. You know, I admit as we talk about and consider the government, even here in the West today, even here in Southeast Michigan, if you will, Uh, let alone in our country in general, this whole conversation does get nuanced somewhat with the reality that we have a constitution here in our country and it actually makes this whole conversation of 1 Peter 2 somewhat fun and entertaining. But I also realize this, and I trust you do as well, that even in constitutional setups like ours, some Christians can get arbitrary and capricious in what they consider something worth rebelling over, right? you have got to be honest there. We also know that Peter and Paul both stress the responsibility of government to reward good and punish evil. Peter said it in this chapter 2. Paul says it in Romans chapter 13. But we live in a corrupt, fallen world where the government many times we'll call evil good and good evil. And this, in some context, may necessitate our disobedience and our acceptance of consequences in a perverted value system that is due the wrath of God. You know, as we think about our submission to government, as we studied last time, we Never want to forget, John the Baptist had quite an interesting and warm lunch relationship with Herod, of all people. Even when he was in prison, Herod used to send for him, and he enjoyed listening to him and talking with him, even though John would confront him about sin in his life and his need for a Savior. There was confrontation, yes, but there was yet a gracious invite to discussion and relationship there. Remember that. And by the way, no matter what what kind of government we want to bring into this discussion of 1 Peter 2, whether it's a constitutional government like ours or a dictatorship like in other countries, we have to understand this, that Christians will never find themselves under a government where Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 do not have relevance and expression somehow. So we should stop looking for that exception. After all, Jesus and Paul and Peter are instructors and examples of suffering and grace while under dictatorships and corruption. And just one more thing, too, as we remember the ground we've covered in 1 Peter chapter 2 in our last study, we haven't heard the last of Peter on this topic in his two epistles. Stay tuned, the conversation's ongoing. But what I find interesting as we come out of the the study on on submitting to our governments as believers in Jesus Christ, Peter's bringing those same three principles to two other institutions. One is a God-given institution, the other one isn't. You see, in our text that we're going to look at today, he's going to bring the principles of evangelism and sovereignty and lordship into the topic of discussion of slaves or servants. That's not one of the God-given institutions at creation that we saw. But it's nonetheless here in our text. And then when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter's going to bring those three principles of evangelism, sovereignty, and lordship into the home, which is a God-given institution. But this morning... It's that second category. And follow along now as I read verses 18 through 20. What is this stuff about slaves and servants? Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I think we need to go ahead and address the elephant in the room this morning as we come to this paragraph. And the elephant in the room is we are in 2023 in America talking about servants and slaves that Peter is writing about here in the scripture back in biblical times. You need to understand a couple of things or you won't hear anything I say in the next 25 minutes. We have to take off our Western 2023 glasses to read these three verses and understand what they mean for us this week. Commentator William MacDonald is helpful in giving us some preliminary thoughts on how to enter into these three verses. He writes, It is significant that the New Testament gives more instructions to servants than it does to kings. End quote. And if you think about it, he's right. He's right. I mean, there's much in the Old Testament about slavery and and how it is to be governed and what it is and what it isn't. But I'm talking about the New Testament here. Let me show you some examples. Hold your finger here and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says in several of his epistles. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Follow along. Titus 2, 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect sounds a lot like Peter. Because remember, Peter starts this whole section in chapter 2 talking about as we interact with those who are over us, those who reject Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture, we are doing so, keeping something in view. And it's the day of visitation. And we, as we studied that, found that Peter is talking about the potential of the opportunity that someday those who are persecuting us will be visited by the same grace that saved us that will save them. And here Paul is kind of saying the same thing. He says, how you respond, and in particular, you slaves, how you respond to those who are over you might at some point lead to their salvation. As they look at your life and God your Savior in every respect in your life. Let me me show you another one. Go back to the left a few more pages, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I just want you to see that the New Testament is not silent about this topic of slaves and servants. But you can't look at what's being spoken, at, spoken about here through the lenses of Western glasses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. It's interesting that even here Paul's saying if you're you're boss, you're the master over you, in a slave, a servant relationship as a believer... Paul's counsel wasn't to get out from underneath that. It was to work all the harder for the success of that home. Interesting. I want there to be a little tension building in your mind right now. I want to show you, I could show you, I could take you to Philemon. I could read to the whole small epistle of Philemon. I could go to Ephesians chapter 6, but I just want to go to one more, go to the left, a few more pages, to Colossians chapter 3. I just want to whet your appetite for this discussion this morning. Colossians chapter 3, and look at verse 22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. I mean, Paul's taking it to a whole new level here now. He's taking it not just to the external, he's taking it to your motive. Verse 23, in case you missed it, in verse 22, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he's done, and that without partiality. In other words, whether it's the servant or the master who is wrong, they're going to face the music at some point. But as far as your servant, your serving as a servant, it's to be from the heart, and it's something going on between you and the Lord, ultimately, not you and your master. So it is significant that the New Testament gives more instructions to servants than kings. I, uh, it, it's also interesting, too, as I've mentioned, that slavery or servanthood like this was not part of the created order, But it became a reality that provided, in the created order, economic and family survival. We'll get more into that in just a moment. It was a key part in the Roman Empire of a social and economic structure that individuals depended on for their very survival and thriving as individuals and as family units, Now make no mistake about it. I know it's tempting to want to put our glasses on, our western glasses. Put them on for a moment. And I want you to be absolutely grossed out and horrified by the sin of human trafficking. By the sin of forced servitude, especially based on ethnicity. I'm not going to ignore that. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't ignore that. It is a sin worthy of God's wrath. And I want you to have two verses down for this as we're walking through this introduction. The first one is First Peter chapter 1. I'll read it to you. First Timothy, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Just write it down, listen to it. I'm going to start in verse uh, 8 and get to verse 10. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for, verse 10, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There is here uh, in verse 10 this idea of of, of taking someone against their will and forcing them into servitude. That's it's implicit there, and deeper study into the text in that particular verse would be rewarding for you as you as you study that out. But I want you to see something explicit. Here's the second text: it's Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18 in verses 11 through 13 listen to this this is the scene is the the judgment of babylon in the future commercial babylon it says in verse 11 and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore cargoes of what cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood, and every article of ivory, and every article made from very costly wood, and bronze, and iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and spice, and incense, and perfume, and frankincense, and wine, and olive oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and cattle, and sheep. Listen to this. And cargoes of horses, and chariots, and slaves, and human lives. Such such a nation deserves judgment so i want to let you just for a few moments keep the western glasses on and be horrified by what god says is sin and it's human trafficking but you must take those glasses off again to come back to 1 peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 20 Because if all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction, we need to walk out of the service being sharpened and challenged and if need be corrected because of these three verses. It is also interesting in the New Testament that the Bible encourages freedom for those who are slaves or household servants, but to do so without revolt. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. It is interesting in the culture that Peter is writing to, though, back in the days of the Greco-Roman um, society, that such a person who would pursue and even purchase their own freedom was called a technical name. They were called a freedman. But often freedman would would be so grateful to those that they were working for, for, in many cases, many years, that even though they have their freedom now, they would stay employed by those who had taken care of them. And in some cases, would even take on the name of their master. It was a sweet relationship in many ways. Of course, there were abuses in this day. It is important for you to realize, as we come to these three verses, that, Upwards between one-third and as as many as, in some situations, one-half of the different communities in the Roman Empire population were in the category of servant. A third to a half. Some even venture that Christians, because of the persecution, would even have a higher percentage in the time that Peter is writing. So how do you become a, a servant or a slave um, in this context, back then, well, sometimes you were born into it because your parents were sometimes you were um, what was what was left after a war campaign, either you were on uh, a, a nation that had to go on the offense against another nation, and you were brought you were captured in that other nation and brought back sometimes a nation would would advance on you and you would be playing defense, but win and take some of them to be your your servants, your slaves. Sometimes, and in many cases, you chose to be a servant. You chose to submit yourself and surrender your freedoms for the sake of your survival or for income for your home. But in many of these cases, with careful planning, you could work to the point where you could purchase your personal freedom. You have to see that this was so common with Peter's audience. I'm over-emphasizing that to make sure you're capturing this. It's it's interesting as well that that servants that we're talking about here that Peter's writing about often were over immense finances for their masters. They had um, a high level of responsibility and trust called often a steward. In many cases, listen to this, the stewards, the slaves, the the, the household managers, if you will, were often more educated than their masters. They had a specialty beyond what their master had. Some even venture to guess that this is what Dr. Luke was. He was a household doctor before he had freedom to move about with Paul. Sometimes these would be musicians, artisans, nurses... But I love what the Zondervan NIV Study Bible says. Listen to this: Quote, "By addressing Christian slaves directly as free moral agents, Peter dignifies the most vulnerable member of the Greco-Roman society." Peter knew what Paul would write in Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-eight: that there's, when you're in Christ, the ground is level. Master and slave, male and female. The ground is level at the cross. But there was this institution that needed to be addressed. Why? In general, it's just part of our our walking as, as disciples of Christ through this life. But in particular, it was not just the government where persecution would come for you as a believer in Christ, but it was also in this employment structure called the master-servant relationship. There would be persecution there. I mean, this gets personal. It's one thing to be under the, uh, the government, the oppression of the government, uh, as, a, as a large group of Christians spread out, and you knew you weren't being crushed alone. But it's quite another thing when you move from the mob to the individual household where you might have been serving alone. And you were getting crushed there. What's your plan now? And that's where I give you a very simple principle. And the principle is in your notes. And here's what Peter is saying in these three verses, if I can summarize it. Enduring trials and persecution is very personal. It's very personal. You say, what do you mean by that? It's personal because it's between you and your God ultimately not your troublers not your if we want to use his his language here not those that are over you use the Pauline word not your masters bring it currently here we have to have work we have to 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 be employed, to create revenue streams so that we can thrive and survive in 2023. Suddenly, this does come to life for us. It's not always the best and wisest option to jump around from job to job because your feelings got hurt or your workspace didn't smell good. Not everyone has that luxury of moving around. So suddenly we feel like we can lean into these three verses and be sharpened that even in our workplaces, when things get difficult, especially because we're believers in Christ, whether we are overtly sharing our faith and even during those times where we're not, but we're living it and we stand out and we're rejected, enduring trials and persecutions is very personal. It's between you and your God, not your troublers. That's the principle. And this principle, this profound principle, forces us to ask three questions of these verses. What's the first question? The first question is this. What is favor with God? Right? It's where these three verses end. It's the end goal here. It says again in verse 20, What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. Look at it, here it is. This finds favor with God. That's how verse 19 started too. Did you see that? It says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So the first question I have then, even in 2023, is this. What is favor with God then? If that's supposed to be motivating me, what is that? Yeah, this word favor in verse 19 and in verse 20 is a word for grace. It's the Greek word charis. This is a gift. And Peter's going to use the same concept, not the same word "caris," but he's going to use the same concept when he addresses the wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Let, uh, well, verse th- we'll start at verse 3, 1 Peter 3, 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, and this is a different word, same concept as grace, precious in the sight of God. So what's Peter saying here? He's bringing this this word charis in here. There's, There's something about finding favor with God through doing this the right way in our employment relationships for us. It's something about having favor with God, or he'll keep on this theme in chapter 3, verse 4, something that's precious in the sight of God. So, if we're going to ask, what is this favor with God? We need to first of all say what it's not. We know what it's not. Having favor with God is not an issue of earning your salvation, earning your sonship with God. Because that would make salvation as merely a necessary result of living a good life. And we, both, we all know that both Testaments fight against that view. That's, that's legalism. That's making God owe me salvation because I've earned it. And God will never be our debtor. It says in Scripture, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we know whatever favor means, it doesn't mean that I'm earning my salvation with God through this. We also know that favor doesn't mean, listen carefully, that I'm, I'm keeping my sonship, I'm keeping my salvation because of my performance. In other words, God gave it to me, but it's up to me not to throw it away. In other words, some people believe, I can be saved and actually be regenerated, but I can become unregenerated if I sin too much. Romans 8 is going to set that on fire. That is a wrong conclusion. It's God that has set his love on you, and no one can separate you from his love. So we know it's not teaching that, and I want to push a little farther what it's not saying. This thing of favor with God is not saying that it's all about you competing with other children of God so that he'll like you more. It's not that. A father loves all his children, including the ones he must spend extra time on and keeping them within the guardrails of life. So we still haven't answered the question. Okay, then, then he says it twice here. What is favor with God? Can I put it to you I'll put to you an answer here in two words. You want to know what it is? It's parental pleasure. Parental pleasure. Let me try to illustrate it this way. We had twin daughters, right? That was, uh, we went from zero to two when we were 25 years old. We're still resting up from that. That was great. Great adventure. And when they were a few years old, God blessed us with a son Jared, and i 'm like, Oh good,' he got a son coming up the, up the chute here, and someone can help me with the lawn so one of his first obviously he had toy pocket knives and and toy pistols, but he also had a toy lawnmower. I wanted him to think this was cool from a young age, and I have a picture still where i 'm out cutting the grass in North Carolina. And uh, and he's out there pushing his toy lawnmower right alongside of me. He's about this tall, and I'm like, yeah, this plan's moving along just right. Just a few more years, man. Now I'm pretty particular in cutting my grass. I like my lines to be straight. I like the edge to be tight and sharp. You say why? I I don't know. It's just my OCD. Okay, you got yours. I got mine. I want the lines to be right. And when the time came for me to pass the baton on to, my, to my son, guess what? I wanted the lines right. At least righter than my neighbors <laughs> We're so vain. And uh, fortunately, my son had the same OCD. <laughs> he liked straight lines too. And it didn't come naturally, but once he got the hang of it, I found myself not only pleased with my son, but I was competing with my son. Hey, give me the lawnmower back, you know. And uh, and I was trying to sharpen my game, no pun intended. But when my son would come to me after cutting our grass, and I'd be in the house watching a football game, drinking iced tea, right while he's out there sweating it out on the lawnmower, and uh, he would come in and say, "Dad, I'm done. You want to come check it out before I put everything away?" I'd go out there, and I gotta say, the kid was great. He did a good job, and continues to this day be a master grass cutter. And what he saw on my face was a smile. And a genuine thank you, Jared. What was that? Did I love him more than Janelle and Alicia now? No. No, I had something going on with Janelle and Alicia too. But in that moment, there was was a grace that just kind of descended on him with my smile. I loved them just the same, but there was a parental pleasure. I would say such a parental pleasure is what Peter is talking about here when it comes to your Heavenly Father. This is a theme Peter's been on for the first two chapters, the Heavenly Father in your life. Paul would word it this way when he wrote to the believers at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore we, this is Paul talking, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, alive, or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's the Spirit. Or Paul would write it this way in Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, listen, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Even hear the parable from our Lord in Matthew chapter 25 verse 21 where in the parable Jesus says his master said to the servant, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful. You were faithful. That's what it means to find favor with God. It's not moving him from hate to love. It's not convincing him to continue his grip on you as your heavenly father. All that's part of his character and his promise to you but it's wanting to look into your heavenly father's face and see a smile that your life is one of obedience reflecting his holiness that's finding grace a few minutes ago pastor michael read to you from our lord's sermon on the mount material as recorded in luke chapter 6 about when people despitefully use you you respond with grace remember that and then the last verse that Pastor Michael read in that section was this, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. That's what it means to have favor with God. The commentator William McDonald agrees. He writes these words, God is pleased, our Heavenly Father is pleased when he finds us so conscious of our relation to him that we endure undeserved pain without vindicating ourselves or fighting back, end quote. Yeah, that's it. Or the Wycliffe commentary puts it simply, the reward begins where the reasonable ends. That's good. That's the first question. What is his favor with God? Before I move on to the second question, I need to stop for a moment. And ask you, what's your relationship with God? Is he your heavenly father? Like, right now. I, I didn't ask, do you know that he is a heavenly father? I didn't ask if if, if, he's, if, if God is powerful and you're aware of that. That's, that's theological. I'm asking you something very personal. Is God your heavenly father? Do you interact with him as as Abba Father, your daddy. The one who initiated your life and who maintains your life and animates your life with his presence and his grace. Is your relationship with God as if he's your heavenly father? Because indeed he is. You've accepted his free gift that is available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus died on the cross And what he suffered is sufficient to cover all of your sin. And he rose from the dead. Have you accepted his free gift of eternal life? Have you repented of your sin and come running to him to become his child? It's interesting. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, it says, But as many as received him, Jesus... They have the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, you have to receive them and believe Him. Have you done that? If you haven't, you can do that this morning. You can do this right now. As you, with eyes open or eyes shut, you, you say to God, I believe. I believe, Jesus, that you are God and you died for my sin and you rose again from the dead Physically and you've ascended to the father's right hand and you are you are inviting me to repent of my sin and receive your free gift and i receive it that's how you have a relationship with god as your heavenly father notice what the only other option is for you if you don't enjoy that you only have one other option there's not two or three other options the other option isn't, well, I'm just not going to have any relationship with God at all. I just, that's not there. I'm not ready. Well, understand that's not an option. You are either related to God right now, where He's your Heavenly Father, and if you reject that one, your relationship with God still exists, but it's not as with a father, it's with as a judge. And it's only a matter of time, and the effect will last throughout of eternity. Where if you don't repent and believe, the sentence will come down. It will be the full vent of the wrath of God. What mercy that you can be here this morning or be listening this morning and you have an opportunity right now to become a child of God when you deserve wrath. There's a second question. A second question. And it's this. When it gets worse, then what? When it gets worse, then what? You say, who are we talking to? Well, we're listening. As those who are, uh, in order to survive and thrive in our society, we have to be employed. So we're talking about that relationship, for starters. When I am persecuted because I am a, a follower of Christ, I'm a child of God what happens when things go from bad to worse? I mean, is it ever going to work to a place where I can have an exception to this? Where I can be the exception to this? Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows and suffering unjustly. Listen. You can almost, on the pages of Scripture, in those two verses, see a a continuum taking shape, a scale, if you will. On one end of the scale, you have a description of, of a good life in an employment situation. Literally. It uses two words translated in our English copy of Scripture here. The two words are good and gentle. We'd all like to have bosses like that, right? Always defined by that. kind of. We want all of our employers, if you will, to be over there on that extreme and just kind of stay there, good and gentle. But as we keep reading verses 18 and 19, we see that there's another extreme on this scale. On the total opposite end from good and gentle. What words do we see there? We see words like unreasonable. That's a Greek word from, we get our word, skolios. It's something crooked. It's something that's that's dishonest. And we don't just see the word unreasonable, but we see the word unjust. Would you agree that these are two extremes on the continuum here on this scale? I don't know where you find yourself or where you might find yourself in six months in a hostile environment because of your faith. But the question is, if it gets worse, if it moves away from good and gentle and and is moving towards unreasonable and even unjust, what's my option? Well, I can tell you this. One thing that going from good to bad doesn't leave you with, and that's with, it doesn't leave you without having a plan. Your plan is going to be How are you going to love God then? As your troublers move from here in this direction, it does not affect your identity and your plan as a a redeemed child of God. Because wherever your employer, watch this, wherever your employer is on this continuum, even the good ones or the harsh ones, they never change your objective of demonstrating your love for God. Now think of it. The greatest command in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, Jesus gives us the answer. What's the greatest command? The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Unless you're living on this side of the continuum. Does it say that? No. The greatest command that you and I have is to love God with our entire person. And what's the greatest proof of that love? The greatest proof is always, John 14, 15, Jesus gives us the answer, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you understand what that means? As your employers move from good and gentle towards crooked and unjust, your assignment's still the same. As things get louder in this direction, your love for God becomes louder the more difficult it is to sustain yourself in a difficult situation, the more you lean on God's grace to not only stay but to thrive because of your faith in God and your love for God, then what happens? You're loving God, you're worshiping God. The more difficult it is to do that, the more louder the volume is of your love for God. You say, well, that my boss is so unreasonable. Okay, well, then love God more than your boss is unreasonable. Turn up the volume of your love towards God. When I lived in Chesapeake, Virginia, I'd, we lived real close to the YMCA, literally a fourth of a mile away, and we'd go there sometimes and work out in the mornings, often, on an elliptical or something, and I'd always go in there, and they'd have... Had their, they'd have their music on, on the loudspeaker, and it wasn't my flavor of music. I'm not saying it's, not, it's, it's sin. It's just not what, I, what you'll find in my car when I'm driving around. I'd either have my own music on in my earbuds, or I'd have a podcast going. And, man, they sometimes would just crank the music up, and you could hear it over all of the other mach- exercise machines and ellipticals and treadmills. And you know what I found out? That uh, the more that they turned the volume up of what I don't want to focus on, I could still win. I would just turn my volume up a little bit more. And it kept my focus. That's what we're seeing here. Wherever your boss may be on this continuum, and I'm not, don't don't look to be the exception and talk about policy of the company and there can be discipline for unreasonable bosses. Use all those means. But some of you don't have that option. And when it gets unreasonable, my question is this, will not grace allow you not only to stay, but to thrive, and remember the end game is the day of visitation for an unsaved person. That's the question that Peter's forcing in verses 18 and 19. So what does it mean to, what does this favor with God thing? We got that. When it gets worse, then what? Got that. There's one more question and we're done, and it's, I want to read verse 20. Verse 20 says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with men. Here's the third question. It's simple. If I find myself as a believer in a difficult employment situation, the question is, am I innocent here? Am I innocent He's using these words: uh, "Be submissive," verse eight or verse eighteen. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. This is a, a thought that he used also at the beginning of verse thirteen. Same Greek word: submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every to every human institution. And he uses this concept of fear. It's, it's in verses seventeen. It says, "Fear God." In verse eighteen, it says. Uh, um, Be submissive to your masters with all fear. Same Greek word, phabos. So what is he talking about here? He's saying whatever verse 20 is saying is this, that it is affecting me in this way, that I am aware of God's presence with me as I'm suffering. I fear God in my daily responsibilities to man because I'm aware of God during those difficulties. So we have to ask the question, am I I innocent? I mean, is there there a possibility that my employer going in a bad direction on this continuum towards unjust and unreasonable, is it in response maybe to something I'm doing that's sinful? There is a possibility there because that's what Peter is asking in verse 20. I mean, if I do bad and I bring this out of unsaved people, um, don't act like a martyr. You're being, the Greek word is hideous. It sounds a lot like idiot because it's where we get our word idiot, right? If, If your sin is bringing this out of unsaved people, you're no martyr. It's only when your righteousness, you're living a, a life of the light of the gospel that brings it out. He says, and that finds favor with man. So you have two questions here underneath this third question. Did my actions bring this on? Have I been wasting time? Have I failed to achieve reasonable goals? Have I been personally lazy? Have I been factious with my bad attitude? Have I been insubordinate Have I expressed anger? Have I gotten my ego all wrapped up in this? Do I have a small M Messiah complex in my, my work group? Am I just using everyone and everything here as a stepping stone? In other words, the first question, are my actions bringing this on? Or another question, did my reactions to the troubler bring this on? Have I been a person of protest Someone who goes absent, missing in action instead of at my responsibilities? Do I create margin between me and that that manager? Do I polarize a team? Do I intimidate people with my personality? we got to ask this third question if things are difficult at work. Am I innocent? It's interesting, at the end of chapter 2 in our next study, we're going to see Jesus and how... He didn't sin with his mouth. Why is Peter going there? Because that's where our sin usually starts. With our mouth, with our nouns and verbs in the workplace. I don't know. I'd like, if you're taking notes, write down a few psalms. This is just a homework assignment for you. I want you to write down Psalm 31. 141. 40. And 41. You say, where are these psalms going to take me? Well, those are just samples. We could give you many more. But here's what I want you to look for in those psalms. David is complaining about his enemies. He's coming to God saying, this hurts. And in every one of those psalms and many others, whenever David or the psalm writer wants to talk about the enemies of God that are making life difficult, in every one of those psalms, he also asks the Lord to search his own heart for his own iniquity. He doesn't just say, God, get the bad guys. He says, and am I one? Is there iniquity in my life? What's the answer to this question? The answer is it could be that you need to repent to God and to your employer. Because you haven't been suffering for righteousness. It might not change your employer at all, but it might get them ready for the day of visitation. When the gospel will find root in their lives. So we have these three questions answered. What is favor with God? It's parental pleasure. When it gets worse, then what? Love more. Love God more. Am I innocent? Well, if yes, the answer is repent. So we have this principle at the top of your sheet. Enduring trials and persecution is a very personal issue. It's between you and your God, not your troublers the Wycliffe commentary is right once again when you find these words quote the spirit-filled believer is enabled to meet demands unreasonable yes quite impossible on any other basis end quote you're going through it with the presence of god in your life you say all right that's that's a hard paragraph And it was hard to keep the glasses off to see what Peter is writing and so how it applies today. So I can buy in, I I can see that, and I want to nuance it and ask for exceptions, but I I, I nod my head to the truthfulness of this as God's word. But I'm frustrated, to be honest. I got to see this thing in action, because I don't know if I'm all in yet. I want to see it not only in relation to the government, but also to the economic society I have to survive and thrive in. I want to see an example. Oh, you'll get it. In our very next paragraph for the rest of this chapter, when we come together again, you're going to see the perfect pattern. Spoiler alert, it was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to have understanding, to press into language that we need to to keep in its context. Lord, we are rightfully angered at any kind of human trafficking and servitude, forced servitude based on ethnicity. It's wicked, it's dark, it deserves your wrath. But Lord, help our right and just disturbance at that, not to blind us to the application of these three verses in our places of employment today. And I pray that we will ask these difficult questions because our enduring in workplaces under these managers and these owners, because we're Christians, can be quite difficult. But because of what we found in these three verses in your word, Lord, we now have a plan. I do pray for those under the sound of my voice who have yet to become your children. I pray that you'll open their eyes to see their sin, the beauty beauty of Jesus Christ, and the work of Christ, and may they run to him in faith and repentance and join the parade of the persecuted for a season who will be with you forever in glory. In Jesus' name we pray.